Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Julia LaRoche Show. We are joined by a returning guest. We have legendary investor and adventurer Jim Rogers back on the show to share his economic outlook, why we will likely see persistent inflation, and his thoughts on the bond market, commodities, including gold and silver, and his outlook on the U.S. dollar. I hope you all enjoy this one as much as I did. Jim Rogers, it is so great to welcome you back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me again. And it's great to see you again, Jim. Good year. I am delighted to be here. It is my pleasure, my honor. It's very good to see you. Likewise. Well, it's been just over a year since we had you. And I want to start where I always start with my guests, and that is to get your updated macro view, your latest big picture view on the economy and the markets. And feel free to take as much time as you'd like to set the table, if you will, on where we are when it comes to the global macro big picture. Well, okay. Uh, As you know, uh, the central bank has printed a lot of money the last few years. So we're still having a good time in the U.S., I would suspect that 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 good time will last for a while. You know, there's not an election for another year, and politicians try their best to make everybody happy going into an election, so they're going to do their best. They will not last through the election, but for a while now, we're all going to feel good because Washington is doing its best to make us think we feel good. I'd love to hear more on that. Well, throughout American history, we have an election every four years. Politicians know that, and they do their best to hype things up. If you look at American stock markets, you will see that nearly every year in the third year of a presidential term, the year before the next election, in other words, stock markets have nearly always been good in the U.S., because all the politicians are trying to make everybody happy going into the election year. By the time the election comes, things have usually calmed down. People realize what's going on. But for a while, in the year before, politicians can get away with it. They spend a lot of money. They do favors for people. They do everything they can to get the stock market up. And it's worked again this year. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is delaying a recession? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you expect that we will eventually, I mean, I suppose eventually, but do you have a viewpoint on a recession? Well, we haven't had a economic setback in the U.S. since 2009, which is 13, 14 years now. That's the longest in American history without an economic problem. So, We're getting closer. It doesn't have to happen, but it always has. And this is the longest period without a recession in American history. So I would suspect we're getting closer. There are many signs taking place. Inflation's coming back. Interest rates are going higher. All the signs of things that happen before we have a problem. So I can see it coming. Not here today, but I can see it coming. Look out the window, Julia. You'll see it coming, too. Do you think we'd see one before an election, or do you think that maybe that might factor into not seeing one? Well, it might start before the election, but I assure you the politicians all over the country 
will do their very best to cut back, make it cut back, hold it off until after the election. It may start. Uh, it may well have already started. You know, we've seen a couple of bank failures, things like that. Nothing serious yet. I mean, nothing big time serious like a nationwide recession. But <clears throat> it may start. It usually does start before the election. But politicians have always been, nearly always, been able to cover it up until after the election. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned inflation. I would love to hear your thoughts there. Do you, well, I just, I'll start there. I want to hear your thoughts on inflation and then I'll have some follow-ons. But inflation is not good. How's that for a thought? Um, no, inflation has started throughout history when a government or anybody prints a lot of money. It has always led to inflation. It's pretty simple the way the world works. And in the last <clears throat> several years, the central bank in the U.S. and elsewhere, but especially in Washington, has printed huge amounts of money. It has led to inflation, and it's going to get worse. You know, we've never had such huge money printing in the history of the world, and it happened all over the world. Like, gosh, the Japanese in Tokyo, they're even not worse than Washington, but as bad as Washington, and it's happening many places. So we have a period, probably never before in world history, when we've had so much money printing by major economies, and we're all going to pay the price. Mm-hmm. So when you hear the Federal Reserve talk about being resolute on inflation, getting back to that 2% target, I take it that that might not be realistic from where you sit? Well, I have learned not to pay too much attention to what the central bank says. I have to listen because they do have an influence and people listen. The one that must listen to them, but no, they. For me, they don't have much credibility. The central bank in Washington has very, very rarely been right in its history. It was founded in two thousand. I mean, sorry, nineteen thirteen. Uh, it's been wrong most of the time. But Julia, remember, these are government employees. They don't know anything. They can't get a job in the real world, so they work for the government. They get a government job, and they're academics and bureaucrats. Yeah. Um, I think the last time I had you on, we were talking about bonds being in a bubble. I want to get your latest update on the bond market. What is that for you today? Well, that bubble popped, at least the first pop has happened. Uh, Bonds calmed down, as you know, since the last time we spoke. and I would imagine they're going to have a revival because, it, you know, the way markets work, they go up, they correct, they go up, they correct. So we're having a correction, a normal correction in inflation numbers. Makes the central bank think, ah, we did it. We won. We did, we did what we were supposed to. And so people will think things are better for a while. But if when the economy starts slowing down, the central bank is going to print a lot more money. Inflation is going to come back, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. No, we have staggering amounts of money printing in the last year or two all over the world, and we're going to have worse inflation. It's not over yet. Can you help me understand a bit more on the on the bond side of things? I'm trying to 
I try to learn and I get to learn from incredible folks like yourself. I just want to hear more on that thesis. Oh, Julia, first I said I make many mistakes, uh, lots of mistakes. We can talk about mistakes if you want. But, uh, you know, bond prices went to the highest in American history, in world history, in fact, and interest rates went to the lowest in American history a year or two ago because they printed so much money. All that money print, the money's still there. They didn't burn it up after the first year or two. The money's still out there floating around somewhere. And so inflation will come back. And when you own a bond, you have a fixed rate of income. And if there's inflation and you have a fixed income, you know that the income you're getting is worth less and less and less. And that's why bonds start going down. Because everybody says, wait a minute, I'm getting 4% from this bond, but 4% is not worth, not worth what it used to be. So then people start selling bonds and interest rates go higher. And it's happened often and it's happening again. And it will happen again. Okay, so that's like on this notion, okay, when rates going higher, and that could be like the duration risk of holding those bonds. Well, yes, if you want a bond paying 4% in interest rate and uh, inflation is 7%, every day you're losing money. And if your bond doesn't mature for 28 or 29 years, you're going to be sitting there losing money for 29 years. And most people will not be happy about that. When we were talking about inflation, you pointed out that it's not just in the U.S., that inflation is all over the world. What are the consequences of that? Like, it sounds like there's always this notion of the U.S. is the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry pile. How does, what does the world look like with like more persistent inflation just broadly? Well, I don't know if we're the cleanest shirt. You know, Japan reports lower, uh, lower inflation. I'm not sure I trust them. All governments have learned to lie in, the, in all in governments in the world. But the Japanese certainly report lower inflation than we have. Some countries do. But whether it's lower or higher, we're all having inflation, and the price of oranges is going to continue to go higher. The price of nearly everything is going to continue to go higher, whether we're talking about Uzbekistan, Japan, or North Carolina. Yes. Where do you want to be? Where In, a, in that kind of world or scenario, where do you want to be allocated? Where where do you find protection? Well, if prices are going, if you're in a world where prices are going higher, you want to own the things that are going higher in price. And it's probably not bonds. It's rarely been bonds because bonds suffer from having no a fixed rate of interest. So people don't want to own bonds when they see prices going higher. Property suffers because many people who own property, have mortgages, and they have to pay interest. And if interest rates go higher, it hurts their property. Even if they don't have debt, their neighbors have debt. And the people down the street have debt, and they suffer. And they have to sell, even if you don't have to sell. Stocks usually suffer in times like this because people can get a better returns, they think, from interest rates uh, that are going higher. So the only thing that benefits at a time like this are 
real assets, commodities, call them what you will. I mean, you know, the price of silver nearly always goes up when there's inflation. The price of rice nearly always goes up when we have inflation. So the real assets, the commodities, are usually a good place to, to ride it out and even perhaps make a lot of money. And within the commodity universe, I take it like precious metals being one of them? Well, I own silver, I own gold, I own lots of things. Uh, if I were buying one today, I would buy silver instead of gold. Gold is near its all-time high. Silver is down 60% from its all-time high. Silver is down a whole lot from its high. So if I were buying one today, it would be silver instead of gold, just on a price basis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so on a price basis, silver versus gold. I do want to hear your thoughts on gold. Um, you pointed out that it's still near its all-time high. Is it surprising to you that it hasn't like moved even higher? Well, it's near its all-time high. That's pretty for people who own gold. That's pretty nice. Uh, but yes, I guess you could think since inflation's around the world and we have wars going on around the world, often in times like that, gold goes very, very high. Um, I. I'm not smart enough to know the gold market, why it hasn't gone higher. Yes, I certainly understand why you're a bit perplexed and why you ask, but before this is over, Julia, it's going to go much higher. But if I were buying one today, as I said, I would buy silver instead of gold. Just Is that purely just on the price basis? Yeah, it's purely on the price basis. Silver's down 60% from its all-time high. Gold is near its all-time high. Do you want to do any? Are you doing anything in, within within stock markets, or are you trying to just avoid equities right now? Well, I'm mainly not buying equities. I'm, I'm selling. I don't own as many equities because, you know, stocks in nearly everywhere, in many countries in the world, <clears throat> made all time highs or near all time highs. One of the things I learned early in this business is you should buy low and sell high. When everything is high, it's for me anyway, not a terribly interesting time to be buying. There are places like Uzbekistan, which are perhaps cheap. <clears throat> it's a small market, new market. China is certainly depressed. There are some markets where there may be opportunities, but most stock markets have done very well in the last few years. You mentioned at the top of this conversation about um the recent short selling ban. I I want to hear. I know in the past you've said that short selling is a bit of like a forgotten art or a lost art. I want to hear your thoughts. Just one reaction to that news, but let's also dive into some short selling as well and why that has become a lost art and why it's also important. People often criticize it. Well, one reason it became a lost art is because markets have been going up for 15 years. <clears throat> and most short sellers don't make money when stocks are going up for 15 years and bonds went up for many years. So most things that you might sell short have been going higher. And so that's not been a good way to make money. And so that's why fewer and fewer people have done it. Just yesterday in Korea, they did outlaw short selling. Politicians, oh my gosh, politicians periodically get it into their head that they should outlaw short selling. 
the evil short sellers cause our problems. Actually, the evil short sellers are good for markets, but that's another question, another discussion. But Korea outlawed short selling again yesterday. Needless to say, that removed some sellers from the market, so the market went up a lot. So the politicians pat themselves on the back and see how smart we are. We made the market go up. It's artificial and short term. Yeah, and as you point out, short sellers, the evil short sellers or whatever they call them, they're good for the market. Explain that. They are they play a critical role. Oh, they're good for markets, you know, but few most people don't know much about it. Richard Nixon didn't know you could do it. Even when he was president, he was shocked to find out you could sell something you didn't own. Uh, you know, a lot of people have not, most people have not known much about it. There have always been some people who are good at it and many who are bad at it, like anything else, like baseball or sewing or anything else. So, but short selling, in my view, and I think it's pretty easy to demonstrate, is good for a market, but I don't have many shorts right now, and virtually none right now. So I'm not talking my book. Mm-hmm. Um, well, other than um, you mentioned commodities, okay, you're not short selling right now. Um, not much in the way of like equity markets right now. What what else are you doing that you can share? Well, I'm mainly looking and trying to figure out where we're going. I have a lot of U.S. dollars in cash uh, because I, I'm looking for which currencies will be the new competitor for the dollar. I have not found it yet. You know, Washington is driving many people away from the dollar because the world's reserve international currency is supposed to be neutral. Anybody is supposed to be able to use it for anything. But Washington is changing those rules. If they get angry at you, they cut you off. They say you cannot use dollars, or they take them away from you. They confiscate them. So many people, including our friends, are starting to look for something to compete with the U.S. dollar. I don't know what it will be. Throughout history, every hundred years or so, the world's international currency has changed. U.S. has been on top a long time. We have problems with the largest debtor nation in the world. So for fundamental reasons, people are worried. For political reasons, now Washington is changing the rules. So many countries, our friends included, are looking for something to replace the dollar. I don't know what it's going to be. If you know, please, Julia, you don't announce it on the show, send me an email. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm sure you will figure it out before I do. I was reading, um, well, I've read, I think you've written four books and I've read all of them, but I was reading Adventure Capitalist. And in the book, you also mentioned the US dollar and how sanctions don't work. And you learned that, or you talked about that during your travels of like the doesn't work. And I take it that's what you're talking about here with the U.S. dollar. Can you explain that? Like why they don't work? Why do you think they keep using sanctions if they don't work? I suppose that's the weaponization of the U.S. dollar, right? Well, politicians love sanctions because they can go on TV and say, oh, we did, did it. We punished them. We put them under sanctions. And everybody says, oh, Senator Jones is a smart guy. He put sanctions on those evil people. But in the real world, 
the evil people and their friends and everybody else realize, ah, if there are sanctions, we can make a lot of money if we can find a way around the sanctions. So black markets develop. And black markets can be extremely profitable for people in them. They're illegal, but if you get caught, you would suffer a lot. But most people know a way to get around black or sanctions. And if you get around sanctions, you'll make a lot of money. And so therefore, black markets have a huge attraction to many, many people because they know they'll make a lot of money. So that's one main reason that sanctions have worked for a short time or have worked against a few people. But for the most part, they don't have much long-term effect. Yeah, and you had that realization like probably well over 20 years ago at this point. Well, sure you. People have been figuring this out for a lot more than 20 years. I'm not the first and the only person who knows that black markets develop when you put on sanctions and controls and People love black markets because they can figure out a way to make a lot of money. I'm not in any black markets as we speak, but throughout history, hundreds of years, people have figured out ways to have black markets and be make money. Mm-hmm. You were mentioning um, the U.S. being the largest debtor nation. Um, and I actually forgot what year you left the U.S., but could you explain... Um, your reasons for moving to Singapore and what was it that you were seeing in terms of like, I guess like the, did, did you have concerns about like the U.S.'s position or decline? Uh, refresh our memory on that. None, none of those have anything to do with why we're here. I, I, for many years, I've broadcast and written that everybody should teach their children and grandchildren Chinese. Well, I was doing that when I, then I had a child and I was doing it in New York, but I realized it was going to come a time when she, many people, many Germans, Chinese, man, everybody said, there comes a time when they're nine years old when they don't care. They won't speak the language you want them to speak because it's not cool. Like my daughter came home from the park one day in New York and was crying because everybody spoke Spanish and they thought she was strange because she spoke Chinese. And so she wanted to, be like everybody else. So we realized if we were serious, we're going to have to take her to a place, a city where she had to speak Chinese. We got out the globe. We found various places. In any case, we wound up in Singapore. Singapore looked wonderful, very efficient and effective and successful country over the past few decades. So we're quite happy to be here. They, they speak English and they speak Chinese. I don't speak Chinese, so this is good for me. That's why we're in Singapore. There are many reasons to be in Singapore. It's been one of the most successful countries of the world for the past 50 years. But we're mainly here. We're not mainly. We're here so that our children will speak Chinese. Got it. Okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't because of like the U.S.'s position? No, it wasn't. It was purely and simply so that our children would speak Chinese. If we spoke Chinese in America, we'd still be there. Got it. Well, um, I do want to hear about life in Singapore because people have asked me or, or the people have asked me to ask guests about it. Um, fill us in on what that's like. And are you getting questions from people who might want to be moving there? 
Well, I am not the Singapore Chamber of Commerce, but it's a small country. It has perhaps been the most successful country in the world in the last 50 years. It was a small 50 or 60 years ago with a half a million people. Now it has five and a half million people, and it's been probably the most successful growth country for those 50 years or so. I mean, it's been remarkably successful. They've done many good things. I mean, it's still only five and a half million people. If you want a country of 100 million people, this is not the place. It's a small island. They'll never have 100 million people. But it is sophisticated. <clears throat> Lots of international people here. It is a financial center. So it has symphony. It has plays. It has various and sundry things that people might want. So <clears throat> that's why we're here so that my children will speak uh, Chinese, but it's also a good place to live. Even if they didn't speak Chinese, this is a very good place to live. But we're here for the Chinese. Got it. Um, well, I did mention your book, Ad Ad um, Adventure Capitalist. So for folks who don't know, okay, you have a couple of Guinness World Records. One... Um, biking riding your motorcycle to I don't I forgot how many countries at this point and also driving around the world to I think the record number of countries as well over a period of a couple of years could you fill the folks in on your adventures your achievements on the road well I should have three I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records three times but listen my parents like that, but it doesn't pay the rent. It doesn't pay the bills being in the Guinness Book of Records. The first was for going, the first you mentioned is I drove around the world on a motorcycle once. That got me in the Guinness Book of World Records. And later, my wife and I drove around the world in a car. And that also got us in the Guinness Book of World Records. But as I say, it doesn't pay the rent. It's nice and it's fun. It, Actual adventure was much more fun than being in the Guinness Book of Records. Yeah, well, I got to say, it's I, you're kind of like Indiana Jones of finance because some of the stories, especially in Adventure Capitalist, make your heart jump because y'all had y'all had some like interesting interactions where it could have gone really wrong uh, for you all. So. Just no, no, you were exactly right. We went through war zones. We went through epidemics. We went. At, we had all kinds of potential problems. But we're alive, so I'm quite happy. I still I have know. both arms, both legs, and we're alive. We're very happy. Oh, we like had near near misses of like the cargo plane that went down, uh, an earthquake, all sorts of stuff. It was just or driving over a bridge. I remember that had mines on it. Um, yeah. It, you are right. Next time we go, we'll take you too, and you can look out for oh, all of those. I don't things. think I'm brave enough for that. Um, okay, but, well, yeah, it yeah, can be yeah. fun, but it certainly is. You always have to be attentive, and you have to be aware that many things can get you killed. Yeah. Well, how did that shape your view of the world? Those experiences. Well, uh, <laughs> at first, it taught me to be very careful. Because, you know, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to lose my arms and legs. But no, I, when you go around the world, you have to be aware of where there are potential civil wars. You have to be aware of where there are potential 
tornadoes, droughts, you know, famines. There are many things you have to be aware of. And if nothing else, it makes you aware that there are lots of problems in the world and lots of potential problems in the world. When you walk out the front door of your house tomorrow, you're not really worried about getting shot by a gorilla. But when you're going around the world, you often go through wars. You have to go through war zones, and you have to be. It makes you sensitive, if nothing else, to potential problems that can arise in the world. Don't worry, Julia. Tomorrow, you're not going to get shot by a gorilla in North Carolina. You might in a few years, but not not this year. Don't worry. And it also probably makes you realize just how much things change and they never stay the same. Well, yes. Uh, it's interesting. And one of, well, if you pick any year in history, Julia, no matter what people think, 15 years later, the world's going to be entirely different. No matter what you think. 1900, everything that people thought in 1900 was wrong in 1915. But that's true of any year. And you made a very perceptive statement. Yes, things are always changing, and things are going to continue to change pretty dramatically. Well, on that note, Jim Rogers, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights and your wealth of knowledge. And great to see you again, Jim. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, my delight. I hope to see you in North Carolina or Singapore or who knows where. I would love that. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Bye-bye.